Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Arwain aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 4, Project Lawful and Their Oblivious Boyfriend. Episode 109. Pull timestamp. Day 10, 8. 8 evening. Keltham will, at dinner time, inform Yaisa that she's been quite successful in her goal of causing him to be occasionally distracted at various times during the day, and he does not want to spend all of dinner like that, and he is therefore going to go sit by Gregoria Antonia and Peranza instead. Keltham will be seeing to Yaisa shortly. He had better, Yaisa tells him cheerfully. Meritzel and Carissa are sitting right near Gregoria, having a not-not-for-Keltham's-ears discussion of how you would define Cheliax's gender tropes if you were doing that. But Gregoria is pointedly not participating in that in favor of talking with Tonya about experiment design. For checking whether security, the washout girls make the law error to do with inconsistent ordering of three preferences. Of all the darn times not to be able to run two streams of verbal interpretation simultaneously, Keltham will try to listen to both conversations anyways while also eating. Tanya and Gregoria are hopefully going to end up on basically the right track and only require a few hints from him. Tanya and Gregoria seem to basically have the concept figured out, minus knowing enough statistics to interpret their results, which is a problem for future Tanya and Gregoria. I'm not sure that mad scientist is a gender trope. To be a gender trope, I think the way women do it has to be different from the way men do it. I think that there are some differences between women mad scientists and man mad scientists, though. Like the archetypal mad scientist woman is Arilu Vorlesh, or Nefredi Klopati, or Philandriel Morgathai, and they're going for a different vibe than, say, Manohar, or the Archmage Nex, or Tar Baffin. Liches is definitely its own gender trope and not just a subset of mad scientist. Keltham will listen attentively, somewhat more so to the female side since these could be eventual future dating prospects. Are there any female liches? says Meritzel. I mean, not that I've heard of, but they might just not advertise it. Then I don't see how it can be a gender trope at all. Honestly, I'm not sure exactly what a gender trope is. Standard, recognizable patterns that men and women fall into or women and women, or men and men, or asexual women and people who looked male at birth but want to become as female as they can. But those are rarer and get long words instead of short ones. We definitely have some of those. I just don't think Lich is one of them. Dangerous bad boy who will definitely hurt you and walk out after sex and never see you again. That's a gender trope. Lich isn't. I could better pass judgment on that if I knew what a lich was, aside from a supervillain-related personality type that commands undead armies. With very powerful magic, you can separate your soul and your body. This kills you, but that's not prohibitive. And contain your soul in an object, which presumably you hide in an extremely secret and inaccessible place, making you impossible to permanently destroy. This is becoming a lich. The powerful magic is of the kind that allows for the raising of undead armies. So, liches usually have undead armies, because if you're really good at that kind of magic anyway, and can hardly piss off Phrasma more than you already have, why not? The ability to raise undead armies is the kind of power where the more you have, the more you can accumulate, 
so people usually coordinate to put down liches that seem to be raising particularly notable armies. And not everyone wants to be a lich because... How exactly to do it is secret, but I think requires sacrificing large numbers of people. And is also incredibly difficult, like decades of work. And many of the gods disapprove, so people who care what those gods think wouldn't do it. You end up as mostly a skeleton, and that affects your sex life, along with your ability to enjoy food and most other emotions, too. Unless you're Takaral, but most liches will never, ever be that good. Thank you, Ioni. That is the context I was missing. Yaisa. This cookie is to congratulate you on having joined that select group of individuals who get advice from oracles. Your advice is that if at some point tonight you can think of something very hot that Keltham could do to you, that you would genuinely enjoy, and that would move Keltham a little further away from obligate lawful good sexuality, you should tell Keltham honestly what you want and offer to pay him exactly half as much money as the most that service is actually worth to you. My curse says that it can only say that this will not harm Asmodeus's interests. Because if my curse told you it would advance Asmodeus's interests, you'd have to do it. And that's not the way for your true feelings to reach Keltham. What? Says Yaisa. Um, okay. Great. Security. Copy that to Subirak's priority, and to sever sometime when it won't distract her from her conversation, in case anybody wants to override that. I don't suppose you can explain the plan, Yaisa says. It'd help with doing my part in it. My curse says that it'd tell you if it was allowed, but it's totally not allowed in any way, shape, or form. I think Sevar also has a plan. You could ask her about that one. Yaisa will indeed ask Sevar if she's supposed to follow this discussion. Tentatively obey Pilar's curse. Will the project spot Yaisa the money she is supposed to pay Keltham to fuck her? Because otherwise, she is not offering him money. You're drawing on clout you don't have, kid. I have to offer under fairness to pay Keltham the money. I won't think it's fair, unless it's project money. Because I shouldn't have to pay a boy for sex. Security, is she telling the truth about that? Security message, Yaisa's overt thoughts match her words. Fine, give her five silver, and check if the price of her soul in dis has fallen now that she's not on the project. After Keltham finishes consuming food, he announces that it's time for another silent image screening of Dathilan. Keltham is still trying to figure out illusions of light-emitting walls with parallax, so most of his images are just being projected onto the illusion of a giant video screen, rather than him trying to make things three-dimensional. Here's a rocket launch. This is how you go to space when you don't have wizards. It involves an unreasonable amount of fire. Probably nobody in Galarian has seen this amount of fire unless they were standing nearby when somebody messed up a wish spell. Galarian conventional wisdom would say not to mess with people who can produce this amount of fire. Many wizards throughout the ages who have claimed that all problems can be solved with enough fire, since if you still have a problem after that, you did not use enough fire by the definition of enough, would feel incredibly pleased and vindicated to know that this philosophy apparently works for travelling to space. Here's a space laser launch. They're not safe for human riders, though. They're used to move fuel capsules into low orbit and higher so that the rockets can refuel and keep going past that orbit. It would be theoretically possible to reach the fourth planet just by burning rocket fuel to lift more rocket fuel into space. But you'd have to be crazy to actually try it that way. It's literally an exponential cost in fuel. 
Anyone trying to work out how much radiance damage this instantaneous beam weapon could do from ten miles away will run out of numbers. If Cheliax owned this weapon, it could conquer Nadal in fifteen minutes. It obviously hasn't occurred to Keltham that anyone looking at this image would see a threat. This could be because Keltham is very innocent. It could also be that, from his perspective, this is obviously not what a serious weapon looks like if civilization is building a real weapon on purpose. This is civilization's chief executive. Yes, she actually dresses like that. Nobody gets appointed chief executive of the bureaucracy by being the sort of person who dresses to please an audience. These are the legislators in session, sort of. Keltham can't necessarily remember all the faces of the current ones, and some of these are actually legislators who lost voting support a couple of years ago. Yes, the legislators also dress like that. Why would their job require them to dress less comfortably? It's not physically hazardous. Yes, she does look young. There's usually one young legislator, typically selected from among the pool of people who are arguably the most accomplished young people in all civilization. Lots of voters are young, and it's not an impressive display of preference aggregation and representative democracy if all the legislators end up old. This is civilization's top keeper. Yes, they all dress sort of like that, at least in public. No, nobody else in civilization dresses like that. You would not wish to be mistaken for a keeper if you were not one. This top keeper is a man who looks to be in his fifties, dressed much more like a senior cleric than any other supposedly very serious and important people shown. Well, different places, different fashions. Your serious and important people might end up wearing clothes that don't show off tailoring, if tailoring is cheap and you want to use your clothes to communicate other things. The rocket fire is kind of beautiful. It feels right for Hell to be bathed specifically in rocket fire. She should figure out how to make that happen. Hers what a video game looks like. Hers a training game for more complicated probability calculations. This is what a hospital surgery room looks like when there's no healing magic in your world. Here's a festival sort of like the alien invasion one, though with a different theme Keltham's not going to explain right now. This is young Keltham and five other boys pretending to heroically ambush an incoming military force. This is the military force firing an announcement into the house. Keltham is inside, saying that their house just got blown up. This is Keltham consulting a random number generator to determine that he's alive but injured and pinned under fallen debris. This is literal superheated Marin, the most famous endurance medical technician in the world, with certs from half of exception handling, using up one of her equipment tokens to blow away, politely open, the house's wrecked door, so she can enter and pretend to remove the heads of Keltham's dead fellow ambushers, while reassuring Keltham that she knows it hurts. She's sorry. She'll be with him as soon as she can. This is Keltham desperately pretending not to be at all starstruck, because he was not previously way into the Marin fandom, but even he has heard of the ordinary Marin conspiracy, wherein Marin has some weird psychological hang-up about believing she is a totally normal and ordinary person, or even something of a struggling low achiever, and everybody in civilization is coordinating to pretend around her that ordinary normal people totally get their weird exception handling training scenarios televised to a million watchers on a weekly basis. Keltham has been asked at one point what sort of woman from civilization he found attractive. If he could have screwed any one woman of civilization one time and wasn't trying to be clever about it, Keltham would have probably picked Marin. Do I have the privilege of being the first to tell you the good news about what wizards can do with Alter Self? Says Merit Cell 
who hasn't trained a shoe materials but is pretty sure she can pick it up fast if Keltham seduction demands it. It was in fact mentioned by that same person who asked me what sort of women I'd previously found attractive. Oh, no fair. Well, Maritzel bets Savar can't do the queen. Not that she can ever admit that she can. And actually, maybe Savar can too, having, you know, had sex with the queen. Sorry. The whole planet pretends she's not famous because she doesn't like it when they acknowledge her fame. You'd have to be so famous to pull that off, says Gregoria. You would think that, and yet prediction markets were running at only 20% that she was secretly trolling us the whole time. There's this weird adorableness factor about it that I'm not sure I can describe, but we'll try to describe anyways. Marin is also famous for having, in your terms, it would be INT 16, I think, or even 15, and yet reaching the top of her profession. Usually when that happens, you just sort of shrug and say that obviously the test just failed at measuring how much real mental power she has. But the fact that she also has this one really weird hang-up proves she actually is somebody who started out non-brilliant and just succeeded anyways by working incredibly hard for incredibly long. It makes her simultaneously an ultra-high-achieving role model who's much more famous than you are, and also, somebody who's committing this very large cognitive error where you know better than her about it. Which is not usually something you can say about a major public figure. You would not usually expect to be in a position where you would ever know about a cognitive error a public figure was committing, because they'd already have advisors much, much smarter than you. But if you screw Marin, you're not, like, just some strictly, vastly inferior being that she's allowed into her cuddle room. There is at least one topic you could totally win an argument with her about, as judged by impartial judges, namely, is she in fact a fairly ordinary person, really? But you must never, ever mention it in front of her. It makes you want to just whap her on the head with a banana until she stops being humble. I don't know. It worked on me. What can I say? Yeah, I can see being into that, Meritzel says thoughtfully. It seems like it'd be really annoying being unable to bring up an error someone is making, even if it's on pain of death, but especially if it's on pain of, like, being condemned in the newspapers or whatever Dathalani famous people do to people they're mad at. A new group of around 20 people, shown on the silent image of a large television screen, sitting all over strange chair-like objects and draped over lying cushions in some kid's enormous well-decorated living room. To Asmodean eyes, they're dressed more nicely than legislators and chief executives, to Daith Ilani eyes. These are people who still have somebody left to impress, with a young person's dignity rather than an exalted person's. One girl is braiding a boy's long hair. All of them have mysterious objects, like open metal books nearby them. My writing circle. They liked fiction with a theme of selfish people, chaotic people, or what passed for that in Dathilan. Stories about people who end up in other worlds, and for some perfectly, totally reasonable reason, they end up needing to run a large criminal organization. At the time, I left home. I was occasionally cuddling with her. Red arrow on Ilea. And that boy's sister. Blue arrow pointing to Corin, and would have liked to score with her. Third arrow pointing to Ranthal, who is visibly the prettiest girl in the group but she's one of those dreadful types who just smiles when you ask her if she's got an upfront price. Keltham loses the image. He kind of expected to. The room is respectfully quiet. Meritzel is wondering to herself how fast she can learn eschew materials. Do you have an ambition to run a criminal organization? 
It'd be a bit hard to arrange, but we could come up with something. Not really. Their stories weren't really about selfish people. More like having some totally reasonable, lawful good reason to end up managing a criminal organization, which turns out to actually be fun for you, and then you have to come to terms with the fact that you didn't properly hate yourself for doing the lawful good thing that didn't look lawful good, which is as close as civilization comes to, even in stories. I'm being unfair because I'm bitter. There are stories about selfish characters, too. But none of those characters seemed to me to be at all like myself, the real thing. It was like they were being selfish in contrast to lawful goodness, instead of as just themselves, somebody else's fantasy about being selfish, or if not that, aliens who were selfish, who didn't have any good in them at all. I preferred to stick with the stories about people who ended up managing criminal organizations for totally reasonable reasons. Further outside the... You don't have the expression. The way that things get creepy is they're almost like reality but still not quite right, instead of just being properly wrong. The trough of the unreal. If you actually know what it's like to not be completely good. Nod. If they successfully make this boy evil, the results are going to be terrifying. Gregoria thinks to herself. They didn't want to not be lawful good, not even a little. They wanted the lawful good thing to do to be managing a criminal organization. That was their fantasy. They wanted to have a different kind of fun, not act for reasons that were like my reasons, and who could blame them? I wouldn't want to act for any reasons but my own reasons either. The thing that puts a valuation on everything is the value function, in baseline utility function. And there's a saying out of Dathilan that you can't argue the utility function. All right, I've properly depressed myself for the evening. Time for dessert. PL timestamp. Day 10. 8. Night. Keltham did not remain depressed for long. He knew that ahead of him lay a date. A date which was delayed. A delay during which things involving Yaisa were happening. Yaisa is very happy. She was on solid footing when their initial assignment was seduce and keep happy this important alien visitor who is a boy your age from a lawful good world. She was much less happy when the assignment somehow turned into learn a lot of complicated math from this important alien visitor while pretending to be from Taldor as recently conquered by a lawful neutral version of Asmodeus. And now it's back to mostly being the first thing, which is great. It's not that she's bad at math. She is fine at math. She was never in the bottom third of the class, and it was only rarely because she was sleeping with the teachers. She is a perfectly qualified wizard who hung second circle spells sooner than half the class, and sleeping with the teacher doesn't let you cheat at that. It's just that math kind of sucks, and there's no thrill in it, and there's absolutely a thrill in seducing lawful good boys and watching them struggle between doing their important project or having sex with you, and getting orders from the gods about telling them what to do. Yaisa's lovely time is only interrupted by periodically having to check with herself whether this is the thing she's been instructed by Pilar's oracle curse to explain to Keltham and then pay him for getting right. She's pretty sure it's not, I'm really into the thing where I distract you from your very important job. Her gut tells her that Keltham would find that adversarial and not in a fun way, and she's pretty sure it's not, I want to bite you when you get distracted and go off on a tangent about probability theory, 
an important skill in Yaisa's line of work, is reading whether someone is into that, at least a little under the right circumstances. And Keltham isn't. Well, this investigation into what she wants that she'll pay Keltham Cheliax's money to give her will surely bear fruit eventually. It might possibly become clear to her around the time that, after Yaisa previously having given Keltham occasional and often mood-breaking feedback about exactly what level of pain is, not even too much, but optimal for her arousal. It becomes clear that Keltham also has the ability to just directly read her arousal, for purposes of, for example, backing off just before she has an orgasm. Submission? Masochism? Why would you need either of those in a partner for them to appreciate that? Why would Dathalani require either a desire to serve or a desire to feel pain, in order to prefer that their partners do more work in order to increase the integral of their pleasure over extended time? Yaisa has been warned about this. It's why she's not supposed to act like she's having more fun than she is, even though, she complained to Subirox at length, having fun is sort of a product of lots of things, one of which is acting like you're having fun and things not being awkward. And, really, she's pretty sure she'd have more fun if she was allowed to act like she was into things where that felt appropriate. Subirox was not persuaded. Anyway, Yaisa suspects, let me act like I'm having more fun than I am, is definitely not the thing she's supposed to pay Keltham for, even though she would pay Keltham for it. Though, this does give her an idea. So, Yaisa says to Keltham, You know what a very clever boy who is good at telling how he's aroused his partner could do? He's listening attentively, though with some amount of new gender trope saying to apply more pain until she speaks more respectfully. Which, what, why? How would that even work? That would work great if Yaisa knew he was doing it. Instead of asking a very distracted girl to report on whether he is hurting her the right amount, he could figure it out himself from her body, from how she's responding to him. This is, of course, him doing more work and her doing less, so I suppose she ought to pay him for the favor. Any qualms Keltham might have otherwise had about whether Yaisa really enjoys this or is trying to lure him into conspiracy grim darkness of unfathomable long-term purpose fail entirely to materialize when faced with Yaisa expressing a financially legible amount of actual desire for something. It also makes his new gender trope feel better about whether he's being respected. Price, he says. She bites her lip in a sexy way. Five silver? You can do that fairness spell if you want. That's weirdly high. Is Yaisa sure that she'd be able to name that amount under a fairness spell? Is it somewhere around half of the absolute most she'd pay an arbitrary person for this service? Ten silver seems kind of high for that quantity, given her financial circumstances. She's not supposed to be paying more to motivate Keltham. She's supposed to propose a fair price to herself, and then Keltham can decide whether to take it or not. Why is he like this? Keltham, the thing that is fun, not the whole thing that is fun, but at least half of the thing that is fun, about sleeping with someone who wants to hurt you, is that you can turn off all the parts of your mind that are looking out for your interests and making sure that you're safe and that everything is fine that you can stop trying to steer your life like a neurotic horse rider obsessing over which cobblestones the horse steps on. That probably doesn't translate at all. That instead of making a decision every five seconds, you cannot do that 
and still have things happen that are interesting and not boring. I think most rich people, and I'm a rich person now, would pay a lot more than 10 silver for that, if paying for it were actually a way to get it. But the thing is that it's pretty hard to pay for. Can you, for one minute, stop nitpicking my prices and decide whether to take it or not? Because the figuring out exactly what I want is not the fun part. He could just take that, to avoid the awkwardness. <sighs> just kidding, Keltham is an Abadar cleric. He could say he'll only take one silver and proceed, but then he'd feel bad about not being sure it was actually worth even one silver to her, and Keltham does have any ability to notice when he's about to perform a sex act he'll feel bad about. Yaisa, ten silver is half of your daily salary. That's really high as a true value on one sub-act of sex, where we do things slightly differently for a couple of dozen minutes. I really wish I had another fairness loaded, but I don't. And an actual transfer of five silver was what you named under fairness for a whole day masturbating without coming. Which is fun, and something I do sometimes anyway without anyone telling me to. Though it's hotter if someone told me to. Keltham. She's feeling insulted and upset and letting both show on her face. She doesn't think they'd be different in alter celiacs. I haven't ever bought sex. There isn't a normal market in it I can refer to because girls don't do that in celiacs and because buying it from someone else would be really different anyway. I'm used to thinking with numbers the other way around, but not this way. I told you a number where if you'd said yes, I would have felt happy and pleased with myself and had a good time. And it's about the same size of favor the other way as spending the day teasing myself. I don't actually understand what your objections are to the number, but I can't. I can't. I don't see how I'm supposed to come up with numbers if instead of just thinking, will I feel happy, I have to also think about whether the numbers are the right percentage of my daily salary given the amount of time where your behavior will be different. That's insane. I'm not good at math like that. If I was, I'd still be one of your researchers. You can say deal, you can say no deal, but there's no part of me I can listen to and get numbers. If you're going to say, no, see the numbers are wrong. I'm sorry, this would be a much more awful problem if the fairness spell didn't exist, and I'm suddenly very, very glad it does. Your max payment is capped at five silver, and you don't actually pay me anything until I can tap you tomorrow with a fairness so the spell does the work for you of knowing how to put feelings into numbers? The amount that came out from you earlier today, under fairness, made perfect sense, even if the number you made up just before then didn't. Also, I'm sorry for being like this. I genuinely am. It's just, I do have any ability to notice when I'm about to do a sex thing that makes me feel very uncomfortable, and accepting five silver for that sex act would definitely have been that. You're a ridiculous alien, says Yaisa, though with less heat. Ridiculous and alien and sure, I'm not going to complain if you want me to pay you less. If I wanted to have sex with someone who wasn't a ridiculous alien, I'd be doing that. It's not every day you get to have sex with ridiculous aliens. So are you going to do it, even if you don't know yet how much you want for it? Even five full silver isn't enough to really buy sex from the ridiculous alien at his current salary if he turns out to enjoy it less that way, and you want him to do it again in the future. But right now, when I don't know how it will feel, and it does seem sort of hot, given that I know you wanted enough to pay for it, and my brain actually believes it when you put it that way, 
I wouldn't mind running the experiment. Oh, good. Then let's leave the payment stuff for tomorrow and try it, because I do want it, and I will pay you for it, and you just might find you like it too. Keltham goes back to what he was doing, namely, fucking Yaisa using Dathalani biofeedback training to hold back his own orgasm, or ejaculate only partially. He hurts her only lightly, at first. Once his attempted reading of Yaisa's signs says she's aroused again, he hurts her more than that. Just watching now, to see what level of pain raises her arousal, what level of pain decreases it. It's a whole new control lever to play with, and so much hotter than he realized it would be. Keltham barely retains enough control of himself to say thickly that, if at some point Yaisa feels like she's no longer getting what she paid for, she should speak up. Then Keltham starts trying to bring Yaisa dangerously close to orgasm, and using as a control rod to keep her there more pain than is optimal for arousal. Decrease it a bit to bring her back up, increase it to take her back down. It feels powerful. A word that Carissa has kept on using with him, that she wants him to feel that way, and which he maybe now understands for the first time. Yaisa is delighted, mostly too delighted to think in much detail about how much she's in trouble for having apparently quoted Keltham the wrong price. When she does happen to think about it, she thinks determinedly that this is, in fact, worth five silver, that this is worth more than that, that once you decide you're willing to pay for sex, this is obviously the thing you should pay for, the experience of endless pleasure and torment at the hands of an alien who is clearly realizing for the first time that this is something he can have. She does not complain that she's not getting what she paid for. Eventually, of course, he flies too close to the sun, and it's clear that Yaisa is starting to come, so Keltham hurts her harder and comes with her. That was fun, and also exhausting, given how much focus it required. It takes an actual, if minor, effort for Keltham to stay active long enough to touch Yaisa's cuffs and speak the release words, before he half collapses onto the cuddle room bed beside her. Part of his brain suggests that Carissa is in the conspiracy, and steered him to Yaisa, who was brought in because she's a much better faker than Carissa. Keltham tells his brain to take a rest. If there's actually a conspiracy, he's not going to figure it out during sex, where everybody appears to be having an uncomplicated good time. It does remind Keltham to cast the Glimpse of Beyond spell he got for today. He'd meant to do that just before coming inside her, but he got distracted. Yaisa has not been replaced by somebody else he could impregnate, who hadn't signed the contract. Or if she was, they replaced her really quickly after that, and Keltham thinks he maintained physical contact with her the whole time. Just to be sure, again, Keltham reaches out his hand and traces over Yaisa's cheeks, nose, eyebrows, making sure the facial features he sees are not illusionary, in case Glimpse of Beyond only catches transformations and not illusions. It is also a lover's caress. No reason you can't have both at once. You're a lot of fun, Yaisa murmurs tiredly, and caresses him back. Are you looking for extra-dimensional invaders? Now? I guess it'd be smart of them to attack while we're tired. He wasn't particularly trying to hide the glimpse of Beyond cast from Yaisa, of course. That would be futile with her arcane sight. Checking you hadn't been replaced with a much more experienced actress or the one-in-a-billion person on this planet of actually a trillion people who would enjoy that. On a totally different note, is this when I find out that you actually have some incredibly fascinating backstory, or maybe that you've got some huge problem I need to solve? 
Because I was so perfect and sexy that it is hard to believe I'm just a student your own age? Asks Yaisa, sounding incredibly pleased about this. Uh, I don't think I have any huge problems you need to solve, or an interesting backstory. I do have this boyfriend who wants me to be able to figure out on the fly what a reasonable price for really great sex is, as a share of my daily income, which just quintupled. Maybe you could go fight him or something. Oh good, because you matched one of my previously undiscovered sexual needs perfectly enough that if you don't have anything at all unusual going on with you, it's ten to one evidence against the whole arrow-larp hypothesis, and I do not actually want to be inside one of those. He feels a strong impulse to just buy Yaisa out from her current job, right there on the bed where she lies beside him, but that is not an impulse-buying decision. It totally has an impulsive purchase subset, though. Tomorrow morning, while you're under the fairness, if you're okay with it, I'd like to also ask you for a cheerful price on your next week for sex work. Just buy it all out from you, and have you do whatever I want during those days, if I get around to wanting anything, or ordering you to do anything fun, and otherwise you can study wizardry or do whatever else you would have done, because I am now rich and can possibly afford nice things like hiring a full-time sex worker just to be around me being on call. To be clear, there's no rule saying you actually have to accept whatever price you name under the fairness spell. You're allowed to try negotiating upwards from that, but I might make you a probabilistic final offer about it. I don't think you're in an arrow larp, Yaisa says. I think you have a bunch of pretty girls trying to seduce you for totally normal reasons. And you'll have more once I tell everyone you're really good in bed. And then she wiggles happily. I'll think about my price for that. Because of course you liking all of that is totally normal, and several other girls here will like it too. They just won't be able to even try to name prices for anything going in either direction. They'll probably try if you tell them they have to, or they won't get to sleep with you at all, says Yaisa, ignoring the first part of that because Alter Yaisa hasn't specifically picked up on Keltham's hypothesis that masochists are fake. Why does he even have that hypothesis? It'll be fine. I can do it with them, I think, now that I've done it with you first. My brain's a little tired from it, though. Quiet snuggles. Mmm, says Yaisa, and shuts up, and cuddles Keltham and prepares her dissertation in defense of her not knowing how much to charge Keltham. Keltham snuggles quietly. It's actually just dawning on him that this is a lot of evidence that... Why doesn't his system one believe it's a lot of evidence that masochists are real? because his System 1 was expecting the conspiracy to have faked this successfully by the time he got around to actually checking it this much later? Clearly so, which is why his System 1 doesn't want to update and claims this is just what was already predicted. Keltham can't back his brain on this. It didn't have to be that way. Probabilistically speaking, there could have been some weird obstacle to Yaisa enjoying herself, Carissa could have said they needed to import a masochist from off-site instead of pointing to one of the existing students. Carissa could have claimed masochists were rarer. Carissa could have not suggested this particular evidence. The conspiracy world where masochists don't exist is now smaller and narrower, and has more of its probability mass concentrated into modes where the conspiracy's capabilities are high enough that Yaisa doesn't really exist or was reprogrammed to actually be a masochist. Either way, she's not a threatened innocent whom Keltham is hurting.
This is just like the thing where he forgot why he originally started to suspect a hidden cleric, that the original evidence was that the attack's timing suggested eyes on Ione but not on Keltham, and he worried that the hidden cleric was Carissa. There's the evolutionary logic that says masochists shouldn't particularly exist, sure, but probably a lot of the real reason his brain became worried was that Carissa wasn't able to go above low arousal with him. Her having just come off seven years of emergency response fighting demons is a plausible reason for her having difficulty relaxing. Fine, the conspiracy had somewhat more ability to select Yaisa before bringing the twelve researcher candidates to meet Keltham in the villa library. But if the conspiracy can find masochists at all, it means masochists exist. If the conspiracy can make masochists, they could have applied the same procedure to Carissa. If they can find or produce Yaisa, why have Carissa merely pretend to be the same thing and then get caught? They're not pretending everyone is a masochist. Meritzel isn't. There are still stories where it's all fake and masochists don't exist, but they're now less plausible, and his brain needs to recognize that the flaming probability went down okay. Literally update it all here. The probability of masochists being fake did not just go up. It did not just stay the same. Therefore, it went down. If his system one wants to claim that it already mostly expected this result, then it should admit that it earlier narrowed down the set of possibilities to the conspiracy either having the power to make Yaisa's, in which case, why not remake Carissa, or Yaisa was already real, in which case, why have Carissa merely pretend to be the same way? Keltham is repeating himself here, yes, but he's repeating himself because if his system one already expected this result, it needs to respect the probable reason why that result would be expected, or else reveal that it secretly suspects some different story. His brain yields, a little, grudgingly. Keltham's deliberative process will take it, he guesses. In time, feeling a little awkward about it because civilization has protocols for dates ending and Yaisa knows none of them, Keltham tells Yaisa that he'll see her tomorrow. Pilar's curse has already submitted an after-action report noting that Yaisa didn't follow her instructions exactly, and offered an amount that Keltham thought was obviously too high, which nearly caused a disaster. But Keltham figured out a recovery before he got suspicious. Today, all the Asmodeans have learned a heartwarming lesson about the importance of precise obedience, which, for obvious reasons of chaotic goodness, is not going to involve Yaisa getting tortured. Pilar's curse shouldn't even have needed to spell that out. It'll turn out fine after Yaisa answers under fairness. Also in other business, Rugaton's brief commentary on Asmodia's analysis of tropes has now arrived with the return teleported evening mail. Rugaton notes that this general scenario seems to her to imply that it would be possible to bargain with the tropes by trying to bring about events that they would favor. But Asmodia is correct that this should be left to the Most High, who in turn is probably going to leave it up to Asmodeus, who is a lot better placed to do this sort of thing than Rugatun. They should indeed be wary of disrupting tropes, but this wariness should be restricted to the realm of not deliberately trying to do that for the sake of doing that. Rather than treading carefully around anything that might be a trope and foregoing their own interests from fear of that, the tropes so far seem to have had little trouble manifesting themselves without any such caution, and indeed, often manifested in the face of efforts to avert them. 
Keltham didn't seem to think it was dangerous to try to avert tropes out of his own interest. If anything, he seemed to behave like the tropes expected it of him. Rugaton is pleased that Asmodia stopped when she could go no further, instead of making up a wrong answer, that she tried to simplify her thoughts sometimes and not just complicate them, that she knew when it was time to leave the remaining decision to the Most High, but reasoned as far as she could herself before deciding so. Aspexia is starting to feel a strange feeling of hope that Asmodia is real. If you wish to support this AI reading and others like it, please visit patreon.com slash askwhocastsai. Any help is appreciated. And thank you to executive producer John Doe 7776059.